0: Martin Luther is considered the founding father of the Protestant Reformation, whereby Christians broke away from the Roman Catholic Church and refounded their beliefs and practices on the scriptures alone. I think that the term Reformation might be a bit of a misnomer. Those unfamiliar with Reformation history might be surprised to learn that Luther himself was Catholic. At an early age, he joined an Augustinian monastery, But his conscience was plagued by the aberrant beliefs and practices of the Catholic Church. What riled him up the most was the sale of indulgences. People could essentially buy the right to sin or save a few years off of purgatory by donating to the church. This is what spurred Luther to famously nail his 95 theses to the castle door of Wittenberg Church in 1517. Now you might also be surprised to learn that that was ordinary thing to do. This was a customary way of starting an in-house debate. Luther was inviting higher clergy to debate over indulgences. He posted it in Latin. People can read it. At the time, Luther was not revolting against the Catholic Church. He was appealing to the Pope to make changes. But it's not like he was trying to throw off Catholic authority. He believed the Catholic Church needed to be reformed from within. And that's what he aimed to do. He remained Catholic during that time. However, the Roman Catholic Church was thoroughly corrupt. They had no interest in changing their ways. Too much money and power were at stake. And this Luther guy was becoming a problem because other people took those 95 theses, translated them into German, and because of the printing press, within two months they were all over Europe. Many other people were up in arms because they all perceived the same abuses as Luther did there's not going to be any reform. In 1521, Luther was declared a heretic, excommunicated by the Pope. He was given a chance to repent of his heretical beliefs, but he refused. He was declared an outlaw, and he would have been killed if it were not for the protection of a German prince. By this time, it became very clear to Luther that the Catholic Church was not going to be reformed from within. It was too far gone. The only option was to cut ties and start over. The Catholic Church had hopelessly lost the true way of Christ. It needed to be rediscovered going back to the scriptures alone. In reality, at this point, it was no longer really a reformation per se, but more like a revolution, because by definition, uh, reformation is the improvement or amendment of what is wrong, corrupt, or unsatisfactory. That didn't happen to the Catholic Church. They did not reform they did eventually stop actually selling indulgences, but it's still part of their official dogma indulgences even today. <clears throat> Instead, revolution can be defined as the overthrow or repudiation of a system or institution whereby it is replaced with something new. And that, that's really what happened. We, we should be calling it the Protestant Revolution. But all this goes to show you that sometimes there can be no reform. Sometimes institutions or movements are too far gone, and they just have to be rejected entirely. There must be revolution, a giving way to something new. And this is a perfect way to set up our passage in Scripture this morning, because we find Jesus teaching and doing the same thing. There is a time and a place for reform, but there's also a time and place for revolution for a complete rejection of the old, replacing it with what is new. Specifically, when it came to ancient Judaism, it so far deviated from God's Torah, his law, that there could be no union with that and the way of Christ. The way of the scribes, Pharisees, and priests was not compatible with the way of the Lord. Compromise was not possible. Jesus did not come to reform the religion of the rabbis. Rather, he rejected it in total, repudiated it, and then replaced it. You just read Matthew 23 to see how Jesus pronounces a series of woes on their whole system. Then you read Matthew 9 to see how the way of Jesus is something new, something radically new. And the latter is our passage this morning, Matthew chapter 9. So as always, take your Bibles, open them now to Matthew chapter 9. I'll give you the same quick setup as last week in Matthew 8 and 9. He's presenting a series of miracles Jesus performed whereby he displayed his divine authority. But he breaks up these miracles with a couple of interludes on discipleship. He teaches us about the true nature of his discipleship. We're now in the second of those interludes, chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. and We covered the first half last time, verses 9 through 13. Now we're in the second half, verses 14 through 17. And these two halves are related. They're separate but related, telling us different aspects of discipleship. At the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus heals a paralytic, first forgiving his sins. That really left us with the question, like Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. What kind of sins? How many sins? How bad of a sinner can Jesus forgive? And this interlude comes in, as if to answer that question the answer is any kind even even the worst kind we see that next in the story of matthew's own conversion as he was a tax collector we can't go into all that background again but suffice to say that the jews put tax tax collectors in like the worst category of sinner but that's that's who jesus came to save sinners salvation and discipleship are open to any sinner Who repents? Matthew exemplifies this in his call, verse 9. After that, the Pharisees protest because Jesus goes on to dine with sinners and tax collectors. Matthew throws a grand banquet, celebrating his conversion, introducing his friends to Jesus. But the Pharisees' opposition gives an occasion for Jesus now to actually teach, to speak. And he talks about who can be his disciple, for whom did he come? He answers succinctly in verse 13, sums it up perfectly, when he says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In reality, none are righteous. Some, like the Pharisees, are blinded in self-righteousness. They shut themselves out of the kingdom. But others are sinners. In reality, all of us are sinners. Those who see their need are broken over their sins and turn to him, will be saved. That was verses 9 through 13. Now, this next passage, 14 through 17, it's separate but related. We find Jesus being questioned again. And these questions relate, still relate to him eating with sinners and tax collectors. Just showing up at that banquet got Jesus in a lot of trouble. But once again, these questions that he's presented with give him an occasion to teach, to respond. And in so doing, tell us us even more about discipleship. Here, though, he teaches us on the newness of his way. His ways are not like the old ways. His ways are not compatible with the old ways. The way of Christ is truly revolutionary. Something we need to hear, Matthew 9, 14 through 17. And we'll read it this time up front so you can follow along reading Matthew 9, 14 through 17. It says that then the disciples of John came to him asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch holds away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Simple enough, our, our plan, like we normally do, just kind of walk through this passage. We need to unpack this, but here we're going to learn about the new and the true way of Christ, what that means for our discipleship the new and the true way of Christ. This passage begins with first a curious question in verse 14. Again, it says, The disciples of John came to him, Jesus, asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Here Jesus is questioned about fasting, but you need to know this question does not come out of the blue two groups approaching him. The disciples of John are are leading the charge. They're vocal ones, but the Pharisees are still right there. This takes place in close proximity to the Pharisees questioning Jesus about eating with sinners and tax collectors. might be the same time, might be the same incident, might be a little later, but there's clearly a connection to this banquet with Matthew and his guests. Mark 2 parallels this, and it adds that at this time, both the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. So, in this moment, both of these groups were in the middle of a fast. Meanwhile, what do they see Jesus doing with his disciples? Feasting. Right after his conversion, Matthew throws this banquet for all of his associates, and there was a great feast. And before, we already saw how the Pharisees were very concerned about the guest list of this feast, namely sinners. Tax collectors. And so their first question really was a critique. Now, how can Jesus, a rabbi, a respected teacher, eat and dine with these sinners? It's beneath him, it's disrespectful, or disrespectful rather. But now we have this second question. Here's being vocalized more by the disciples of John. And they're not so much concerned with the guest list of this meal. They're more concerned about the meal itself. To them, the issue is not, Jesus, how could you eat with sinners? But to them, it's, Jesus, how could you eat? Right? This is a time of fasting. How can you be feasting? Why don't you and your disciples fast like we do? And meanwhile, the Pharisees chime in like, yeah, we want to know that too. Why don't you observe our fast? They're happy to pile on any question or critique of Jesus. And so that's what spawns this second question here in verse 14. I call this though a curious question because it's being led by the disciples of John. And they, unlike the Pharisees, do not appear to be hostile to Jesus. You remember the Pharisees went behind Christ's back. They went to his disciples to interrogate his disciples. And really they were asking a question, but they didn't care about the answer. This was a critique. They weren't there to learn anything. That's not the the sense we get from the disciples of John. They approach Jesus directly. It seems like they just want to know a curious question. Like, why don't you fast? Why don't your disciples fast like we all are doing? Why are you different? Why are your ways so different? That's the question. Now, before we see how Jesus answers that question, I think it's worthwhile to spend a little time introducing you to these disciples of John and the Pharisees, these two groups, and why they are fasting. You first need to understand, like, why were these other groups fasting? So it starts with John the Baptist. He came, as you probably know, as a forerunner to the Messiah to make ready the way of the Lord, to lead Israel in repentance and renewal, to realign their hearts such that when the Messiah shows up, they're on the right path. They're, they will naturally run into the Messiah and accept him when he comes. Their hearts have been realigned to the Lord. That's John's mission. Now, not long after that, Jesus shows up and he begins his formal ministry. And that starts with his baptism by John. That's when John recognized Jesus as the Messiah and John endorsed him. John was happy for his disciples to start following Jesus. We don't have time to do so, but you can go read John chapter one and you'll find how many of Christ's 12 disciples were first disciples of John the Baptist. And then they they jumped ship. But John was happy about that. It's kind of like, it's the whole point. Andrew came from John the Baptist and others. Now, after that, John, that they... they They split paths. John carried on his work. He still had forerunner work to do. There were still more people to reach. Christ's ministry was meant to start small and it ramped up quickly. But John kept baptizing, kept making disciples, preparing people for the Messiah. And so you have a short period of about six months where Jesus and John were ministering in Judea, not together, but in the same region. And one time they, they almost overlapped. We learn about it in John chapter 3. And there we learn that the disciples of John, the guys who were still following him, started to get jealous. Because now everybody was going out to see Jesus. John had reached peak popularity. Jesus was a nobody. But it was starting to to change. And they are starting to get jealous. And so they say this to their rabbi, their master, John. And uh, this is recorded in the Gospel of John 3.26. They say to him, Rabbi, He who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. In other words, like, John, don't you realize he's this Jesus guy? He's stealing all your attention. He's making more disciples than you. Like, are you okay with that? And John's basic answer is like, yes, that's the point. That's the whole point. And so John replies to them. This is John 3.28. He says, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent ahead of him. He says in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. John has no ego. He shows remarkable humility. He knew his role and he was delighted merely to make ready the way of the Lord. He was happy to do so. Now, not long after that though, John was arrested by Herod, we learned about that back in Matthew 4, verse 12. And after this, what happened to John's disciples, the people who were still with him after he's arrested? Evidently, some of them tried to carry on the way of their master. You have to remember, though, John was a desert ascetic. and That meant everything we know about discipleship in that time meant they would have matched the character of their master. And they would have been like John with the type of asceticism. They would have matched his austerity. And this, I believe, explains why they are fasting. John was no stranger to fasting in the desert. He had, his reputation was one of austerity. You see that contrast in the previous passage where Jesus reflects how people viewed him and John, how they slandered them both, Matthew eleven eighteen, He said, John came neither eating or drinking, His reputation was one of of austerity, fasting, not indulging in the things of this world. His disciples would have been the same. For them, fasting was an important ritual associated with repentance and also with anticipation of the kingdom. They fasted to orient themselves to God in a spirit of self-denial while they waited for the Messiah. I think if we had to boil it down to one word, though, as to why the disciples of John fasted and carried on their fasting, it, it would be asceticism. They fasted out of an asceticism. In their mind, rightly motivated, but nonetheless, asceticism. All right, that's a little background on the disciples of John and why they're fasting. Now, quickly, will do the same thing with the Pharisees. Because there's this second group here, likewise questioning Jesus, why he is fasting And they were fasting at the same time, but for a different reason. They've got the same question, like, why, Jesus, why why don't you fast? Why don't your disciples fast like we do? But it's coming from a different place. If we had to boil down why the Pharisees fasted in one word, that would be easily legalism. Asceticism, legalism. And We've already been introduced to the Pharisees before, so I can... Kind of keep this brief, but they were all about self-righteousness and works-righteousness. They were not men of grace. They were men of law. They held themselves to the law. They held everyone else to the law. You might wonder, like, I thought it's impossible, though, to keep God's law. No one can keep all those commands perfectly. And that is true, but they game the system. They reinterpreted, changed, added to God's law, forming their own rules and regulations and loopholes. The result was this man-made religion of works that saved no one, but they were the gatekeepers. In God's eyes, however, they they were phonies and worse. They were hypocrites. All of their religious deeds were repulsive to God because their hearts were far from him. And that's something you definitely see in their fasting. You know, there was only one required fast in the entire Old Testament on the annual day of atonement, Yom Kippur. But of course, the scribes modified that over the years. And by the time of Christ, they required two fasts per week. Every Monday, every Thursday was a fast day. If you wanted to be righteous, not everyone did this, the Pharisees did this, but if you wanted to be like super godly, You have to fast every Monday and every Thursday. It's what you have to do. The law says. And when they did fast, it was not to please God. It was not to amplify their prayers. It was just to be seen by others. This was merely self-righteousness. Jesus exposed this. Don't forget back in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, the three main pillars of Judaism piety, giving or almsgiving, prayer, fasting. They did all these things just to be seen by others. The thing is, though, like when you give in public, when you pray in public, everyone around you can see, like, well, that person is very righteous. But fasting, like how are people going to tell that you're fasting? They're just not watching you not eat. And like, what good is fasting if nobody knows you're doing it? So they started to act in certain ways to broadcast the fact that, just so you know, we are fasting right now. Everyone could know, like, oh, they're also very righteous. They're fasting. So when on these fast days, they tore their clothes, they put ash on their head, ash on their face, just to make, make sure everyone knew they were fasting. They, they walked around sullen. But go back to Matthew 6, if you want the reminder of how Jesus condemns their hypocrisy. Speaking of fasting, Matthew six sixteen, he says, whenever you fast, Do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. This is what legalism gets you. In other words, this is what man's religion gets you. It's self-righteousness, it's works righteousness, both of which are no righteousness to God. They're meaningless to God. They have nothing to do with God's righteousness, which comes only as a gift of his grace. Jesus, meanwhile, he is not like them. He has no regard for their traditions, for their hypocritical practices. That includes their fasts. Look, Jesus is no stranger to fasting. Remember how he began his ministry with a 40-day fast in the wilderness. And he teaches his disciples in Matthew 6 to fast in private, where nobody knows about it except God. He's not opposed to fasting, but when, when it comes to fasting, when it comes to pretty much everything, the, the way of Jesus is just so different from the way of the Pharisees, from the way of the Jews, the ways of the world. Now, at this point, we've learned a little bit about John's disciples, a little bit about the Pharisees, and also by, why both of these groups were fasting at this time. One You might say asceticism, the other legalism. But the question still remains, we want to know too, like, all right, why is Jesus not fasting? Why aren't his disciples fasting? Why are they so different? Well, let's discover the answer. Second, a cryptic response. Verse 15, a cryptic response. It says, and Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn, as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, what Jesus says here, this should be crystal clear to you what he means. But we have the advantage of eyes of faith, the advantage of hindsight. To the disciples of John, to the Pharisees, though, I'm, I'm sure this was a very cryptic response. Like, hey, we asked you a question about fasting. Why are you telling us about a wedding? But one example, as you know, that the teaching of the Lord is so profound. He takes grand truths. He communicates them with these simple images that are so easy to remember. They're memorable, but also they, they force you to think. They require pondering. Which makes you interact; it draws out deeper understanding. That continues with the next verses. Let's ponder Christ's analogy here. In verse fifteen, it starts with a wedding party. You got a, a groom. Your translation li- likely reads "bridegroom." That's already a word in English, like we don't use anymore. We say bride and groom, not bride and bridegroom. But we're talking about the man who's about to be married, and this groom has attendants. Literally, in the Greek, it says sons of the groom, but that was just a a Jewish idiom referring to his wedding party, the the attendance. Now, today, it's customary for a bride and groom to select a wedding party consisting of several bridesmaids and groomsmen. And their function, though, is largely symbolic. Their job is just to stand up front, look nice, but not as nice as the bride and groom, And just bear witness to the wedding. But in ancient Jewish culture, things were a little different. The bride and groom both had a wedding party, but they were more like attendants, almost servants. They were to meet the needs of the bride and the groom. And they definitely were there as friends to partake in the joy of the wedding. But they also served to ensure that this wedding and this huge celebration went off without a hitch. Because, especially in Jewish culture, weddings were often seven-day events. They were a week-long celebration. It was a time of great feasting and fellowship, commemorating this new union. My wife, Angela, was a wedding planner for many years and started off doing, you know, single-day normal weddings. But we got to see some three, four, five-day wedding like extravaganzas, huge events. It's this grand, drawn-out celebration. It's meant to be a good time, but the host, the father of the bride, or whoever it is, he wants his guests to have the time of their lives. They'll never forget. It amplifies his joy and the joy of the newlywed couple. So you get all that, but now now picture this. Picture this this grand wedding celebration. They've spared no expense, five-star meal, the best decorations. It's going to be nice. But something is off with the wedding party. They show up dressed in all black and ragged clothes. They don't look happy. They're not smiling. They're sullen. They're somber. When it's time to eat, they push the plate away. They're not eating. When it's time to raise a cup to toast or raise a glass to toast, they refuse. They're not drinking. They finally ask to explain their behavior. Like, why are you doing this? And they say, it's because they're mourning over their sins right now and fasting. Now, what would you think about this? For the bride and groom, I'm sure this sounds like a nightmare. Like, what, what, why are they doing this? You would say that is inappropriate behavior for a wedding. That's not the time for somber reflection and fasting. If they need to do that on their own, That's perfectly fine. Go ahead. But this is a wedding. It's time for a joyful celebration. Don't they want to enter into the joy of their friends, this newlywed couple? Don't they want to participate in the joy of this grand occasion? I mean, you get how ridiculous this would be, and it really was no different back then. It's just ridiculous to think of the attendance of the groom mourning while the groom is with them. I mean, it's not time to fast. They can't show up wearing sackcloth and covered in ashes. The Jews understood this, where despite their legalism, the scribes actually stated that wedding guests were free from all other religious observation during a wedding celebration. They all had a hall pass the week of a wedding. Now, I trust you can see where Jesus is going with this. He is clearly the groom in this scenario. His disciples are his attendants. That Jesus, the Messiah, has come to earth to take a bride, the church, and that wedding is soon at hand. The the messianic age is dawning. Does that sound like a cause of joy to you or or sadness, mourning? Jesus is the coming of the Messiah, just, just his very presence is good news. It's time for celebration and rejoicing. He's what they've all been waiting for. How could his disciples be mourning at a time like this? When Jesus is around, it is time for feasting, not fasting. And just put yourself in the shoes of the disciples, what they're witnessing at this time. They're watching their master heal the sick, cure the blind, cast out demons, still the storm, teach the words of God, How should they respond to all that they're witnessing? Should they just be like moping around in in sadness and mourning? Of course, they should be jubilant. Like, this is the Messiah. He's here. We, We should rejoice. Let us rejoice. You know, with this analogy, Jesus is actually picking up on the words of John the Baptist himself. John the Baptist used this analogy first, which is probably why Jesus brings it up. But let me just read for you John 3, verse 29. That same passage, John 3, where he's interacting with his disciples. John 3, 29. John says this. He says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. John knew. Jesus was the groom. He called himself, essentially, the best man. He's the best man. But he's delighted that the groom has come. It's not a time for sadness. He's overjoyed. The groom has come. That means the wedding is close. Salvation is near. That that makes his joy full. And look, so it should have been for the disciples of John. Obviously, they didn't fully understand this yet. John was arrested before they could likely fully understand this lesson. Hence, they're still going around, fasting, mourning, waiting for the wedding. Meanwhile, the groom is standing right here. Where are you going? Look, in a way, the disciples of John were on the right track. John the Baptist and his disciples stand last in a long line of God's people who were desperately waiting for the Messiah to come. They represented the culmination of thousands of years of longing. When will God's salvation come? When will he send his prince to deliver us, to make right this broken world? They looked, fasting, mourning, waiting. But now look, guess what? The, the time is now. Jesus is here. That means like, it's time to get up and break your fast, rejoice, and follow this Jesus. If you keep going, Jesus takes this occasion to to reveal a little more in the middle of verse 15. He says to them, right now is a time for feasting, but then he says, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. I'm sure this is still cryptic to them, but I hope it's clear to you that Jesus, is speaking of his coming death, taken away is a single word in Greek, Speaks of removal, often by force. For Jesus, it would be violent. The days will come, as Jesus says, when he will be taken away by force from his disciples that came to pass in the Garden of Gethsemane, fulfilled or, or finalized on the cross at Calvary. Just like Isaiah 53, eight says of the Messiah, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away, cut off from the land of the living. And in that day, they would mourn. It's doubtful that, that the disciples of John understood what Jesus was saying here. Christ's own disciples didn't even understand this because when Jesus was taken and crucified, they thought this was game over. It's the end. And on that day, they did mourn and grieve and fast. But that time of fasting would not last long. On another occasion, the night before his death, Jesus spoke of his ensuing death and resurrection, what it would mean to his disciples, what it would do to them. It would make them grieve. But he said, your grieving will be turned to rejoicing. He said this, John 16, 22. He says, therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. We live on the other side of that. Now we have that joy. We get to live in the joy of a resurrected Savior and new life in him. No one can take that joy away from us. But in our text here now, we have the answer. We have the answer. Why don't the disciples of Jesus fast? Answer, because the coming of the Christ is cause for joy. It's an occasion to celebrate. Just his arrival should create joy and rejoicing, feasting, celebration. But he's not done. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Christ now, he's not done answering. He's going to go beyond what they're asking, and he's going to more fundamentally explain why he and his disciples are so different. It's not just fasting anymore. Just across the board, he and his disciples are vastly different. Why is that? The coming of Christ is not just a time for joy, it is also a time for change. And that's what's behind the next two verses. We can say number three, a challenging illustration. Thirdly, a challenging illustration. Let's read verses 16 and 17 again. He says after, but no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. And they put, But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. And Jesus, he's not done responding. He's technically answered their question, but he's not done. And he gives a pair of questions, a pair of illustrations rather, that are challenging. I'm certain they were very challenging for the original audience to understand, like, what are, you, what are you trying to say here? But they're still challenging for many modern audiences. I've heard these two verses applied, or you might say misapplied, in so many different ways, vastly across the board, most of them wrong, taken out of context. Let's see if we can just cut it straight from the context, like, what does he mean? What's his point? So it starts with these shrinking garments. In the ancient world, clothes valuable. Much more than they are today. Everything was handmade. Most people only had a few pairs, and so you don't have the luxury of just throwing clothes out when they have a something wrong with them. I mean, today, if your clothes get the smallest stain or the tiniest tear, it's like, uh, out they go. But not back then. If you have an inner garment or outer garment that is tear or torn or ripped a little bit, I mean, you're not throwing it out. You have to patch it But you better make sure your patch does not come from unshrunk cloth. Because everybody knows the first time you wash new clothes, they shrink. I guess things don't change, because this is still happening uh, somehow in our modern era. This is just a human history problem. You you find that perfect fitting shirt, then you wash it, and the sleeves don't go down as far as they used to anymore. It's very annoying, especially for, for tall people. But imagine you have this old outer garment. It still has life in it, but a a big tear has formed. So you got to patch it. But you you patch a brand new piece of of cloth to it. You sew it on. What's going to happen? The first time it's washed, the garment will not shrink. That thing's old, but that patch will. It's going to put way uh, too much strain on those already stressed fibers. It will tear away, and a greater hole, a greater tear will result. You understand this. What's the lesson on the surface? New patches don't belong with old clothes. The new doesn't mix well with the old. The second illustration makes the same point. It's been quite the, the drinking container renaissance in the past few years. Everyone seems to have their, their Yeti, their Stanley Cup. Like, it's, it's kind of everywhere. I think it goes to show how much we value having some container to hold our liquids. And you should be doubly thankful... Because in the ancient world, your best bet was an animal skin. When was the last time you drank out of an animal skin? (laughs) They would take the skin of an animal like a goat, make sure it was tanned, leathered, turn inside out, so so shut the openings, and it makes a a watertight, rather flexible container. It has some elasticity to it that actually, actually made skins the perfect containers for new wine. Because as you also know, new wine, as it's still fermenting, it's going to release gases, it's going to expand. But a fresh wineskin could handle that pressure and expand with the new wine. But what about old wineskins? Like anything left out in the sun for a while, they become old, stretched, brittle. They have no more stretch. They've stretched as far as they can. They're starting to wear down. So if you were to make the mistake of putting new wine into old wineskins, what's going to happen? When that pressure would build up, it couldn't stretch any further, it would burst, spilling all the wine, ruining your wineskin. Both are ruined. That's the type of mistake you only make once, which is why I'm sure everyone eventually learns you only put new wine into new, fresh wineskins. Both are preserved. This is equally clear. First, like new patches don't belong on old clothes. Second, new wine doesn't belong in old wineskins. I think if we can boil it down further... We you can put it like this, the new is incompatible with the old. The new is incompatible with the old. That's, that's the surface point of these illustrations, but you can't stop there. This is where I think a lot of interpreters and preachers go off track. What Jesus says so far, I mean, it's pretty clear. We, we get all this. The new is incompatible with the old. All right. Many believe, though, that's all Jesus is saying. They ignore the context and as if that's his point. He's just making some grand overarching point. The new doesn't mix with the old. And then they take that and run with that to all different areas, basically making it mean what they want it to mean, taking it out of context, applying it everywhere under the sun. That's not the case. Jesus is not making some grand overarching principle here. He's making a very specific singular point and we need to get his point. Our job is not to make up our own point, but just what is his point. We conform to that. And the context tells us what's the real meaning underlying these, these images and this point. Yes, this is a contrast between the new and the old. They don't mix. But according to the context, what is Jesus talking about that is new and old? The answer is he's talking about his ways and the ways of the world, the ways of the Pharisees, the ways of John, old ways. Let me just go back to the main question. Why don't Jesus and his disciples fast like the Pharisees and the disciples of John do? Because the new is incompatible with the old. The way of the Lord here is the new wine. Christ, he's like the new patch. And his way, it just does not mix with the old way. Which is what? With the old garment, the old wineskin is what? Primarily, it's the way of the Pharisees. But even the way of John and his disciples falls short. The way of Christ is something radically new. Jesus did not come to perpetuate the old covenant, nor did he come to reform the religion of the Pharisees. I'll say that again. Jesus did not come to perpetuate the old covenant, nor did he come to reform the religion of the pharisees no other system can fit with his he came to bring about something new christ's way was more of a revolution than it was a reform and that is the big lesson here what jesus says here is somewhat less but somewhat of a repudiation of john's disciples they were on the right track but still they needed to get on board They were waiting at the right station, at the last stop before the coming of the Messiah. Look, now the train is pulled up. Jesus is here. They better get on board fast. They better follow him now, not get caught up in this asceticism, which many did after the fact. We know in Christ there is liberty. We're not lawless. We heed the law of Christ. But we know the Lord is far more concerned about what comes out of us than what goes into us. He wants to see righteousness implanted in our hearts, which happens by faith, bearing the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, so on. What we do with our bodies still very much matters. There are to be instruments now of righteousness. But you know, contrary to so many religious movements, asceticism or the harsh treatment of the body does nothing to bring someone closer to God. That's not the way to God. It doesn't even hinder the sinful flesh. The way of the Lord, the way of Christ, as he came, it was not going to be characterized by asceticism. Something Paul responded to in Colossians 2, 20 through 23. For the sake of time, just listen. He says in Colossians 2, 20, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. Why? As if you were living in the world. Do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. But he says, they're of no value against fleshly indulgence. You're fighting the wrong flesh if you're merely just trying to harm the body. These disciples of John, if they don't open their eyes, they're going to miss the train. They would miss Jesus and his way, which is the only way now to God. Now the Christ has come, he, his is the only way to God. So what Jesus says here, it is, you might say, a soft repudiation of the way of John's disciples. But on the other side, it is very hard, harsh, strong repudiation of the way of the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, they one hundred percent believe that when the Messiah comes, of course he'll be on their way, of course he'll be with them, but not even close. Jesus did not come on their way. He had no interest in reforming their way. He did not come to teach reformed Pharisaism. He's not like Martin Luther. We have the Protestant Reformation. He was not making a rabbinical reformation. the system of works righteousness they built did not need to be repaired or improved or modified, but completely torn down. Their house was corrupt to the very foundation, needed to be leveled and then replaced with something new. And that's what Jesus came to do. That's what he means when he teaches. The new is incompatible with the old. There will be no mixing, no compromising, no syncretism with his way And any other way. This is not Jesus opposing the Old Testament. Keep in mind. The religious leaders of Israel. They were not the picture of the faithful Old Testament. Old Covenant saint. That would be more like John and his disciples. No rather led by the scribes and Pharisees. They had buried even the way of the Old Covenant. Under so many rules and man-made traditions and rituals. That it was hopelessly lost. They in turn were hopelessly lost as were all who followed them. I don't know about this moment, but later in time, the religious elite eventually figured out, like, Jesus is not on our side. He's not on our way. He doesn't support us. To the priests and Sadducees in Jerusalem, Jesus was bad for business. To the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus was an existential threat to their entire way. When they figured this out, There's no option. They had to get rid of him. He could not be allowed to live. Little did they know, though, that by killing him or taking him away, they put the axe at the root of their own tree and also opened the doors to life for all who would follow him. But there is a huge takeaway in all this for us, namely that the way of Christ does not mix with any other way, from asceticism to legalism, the way of the Jews, the way of the Greeks, The way of God, or rather the way to God in Christ, is incompatible with any other way of the world. Don't get this wrong, because the way of Christ is the only way to salvation. Look, there were many in the very first church who missed this lesson. Does the name Judaizers ring a bell? This is a prominent group of Jews who accepted Jesus as the Messiah. They entered the church, but... They wanted to hold on to their old ways, their old system. How did that work out? It didn't. They burst like new wine and old wineskins. They just imploded. Law and grace don't mix, like oil and water. This explains why much of the New Testament was written to correct this. It took some time for the Jews to realize just how radically new the way of Christ was. Galatians 3.3, Paul says to them, Are are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You started well, you started following Christ alone, but why did you hop off the train? Why are you running back to that old, dead religion? It's literally a dead end. This was a huge lesson for the first believers to learn, and it still is today. You all know we sing this song, In Christ Alone, a lot. But you need to believe it. Our faith, this this Protestant faith, recaptured by Luther, seeks to go back to the scriptures alone to understand the way of the Lord. What what is the right way of the Lord? Let's go back to the Bible. When you do that, you find the way of salvation is in Christ alone, and you receive him by God's grace alone, through faith alone. This is not the way of Christ is not. Christ plus rituals, Christ plus traditions, Christ plus rules, Christ plus asceticism or legalism. It's not Christ plus anything. To be accepted by God, it's not Christ plus attending mass, going to confession, being absolved by a priest, and doing penance. There's none of that in scripture. That's all man-made tradition. It's Christ alone. To be accepted by God, it's not Christ plus getting my act together first. Christ, but I've got to first shake or change up, kick some of these bad habits. Don't get me wrong, repentance and faith are tied at the hip. But the point is, you will never be worthy enough or good enough to go to Christ. You can seek reform all you want, but you and me before him will always be unworthy and unrighteous. That's why you too don't need reform. You don't need simple reform. You need revolution. The Bible calls it rebirth, regeneration. How does that happen? And what do you know? By Christ alone. To be accepted by God, it's not Christ plus a list of rules to keep. No drinking, no swearing, no watching R-rated movies. How we live matters, but our lives are to be governed by the standard Christ set before us. Don't add to it. Even then, our acceptance before God is not based on our performance. To be accepted by God it's not Christ plus spiritual sweat. Like, I believe in Jesus, but I don't know if I'm good enough. I, I sin a lot, so I, I know. I'll read my Bible extra. I'll pray longer. I'll give more. I'll volunteer at church. I'll never miss a service again. As if it's the way is Christ plus effort. But no, these things we do to grow, to please God, to express our faith. But understand that the way of salvation is not Christ plus our performance. It's based on his performance alone. It was only Christ alone who lived a perfect life without sin, fulfilling perfect righteousness. It was only Christ alone who died on the cross as a substitute, sacrifice for sinners, paying our debt, rising from the grave, and it was only Christ alone who grants us, who can grant us the forgiveness and the righteousness we need to be reconciled to God. Jesus did not come to patch up our dirty rags to help us reform our our character. He came to do away with our filthy rags, make us new, and then clothe us with his perfect robe of righteousness. That he does by grace alone, working through our faith alone, in him alone. There's no other way. But this is good news. And this is his way. I hope you have found his true and new way this morning. And when you do, you find him, you know him by faith, you enter into his joy. You join the wedding party. You realize this is time to rejoice. This is the joy of... Of the Lord. We have good news. We still await the consummation. The grand finale. Which means there's still time for others to enter in. So now in response. Let your neighbors know. Let the nations know. That Christ the Savior has come. He is the way. He is the only way. You must follow him. And you'll enter into the joy of your bridegroom. Let's rejoice together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do share hearts of joy together for this Christ, this Messiah who has come. The train has arrived. And I pray all here are on board, seeing in Christ their only hope, their salvation, but also the source of joy that the one has come who can reconcile them to you, redeem them, make them right and his is the only way it has nothing to do with our works our effort our striving is is losing for we are worse than matthew sinners tax collectors all of us unworthy unrighteous before you we need to reckon this but that that causes us like matthew to run to him run to the cross cling to him as our only hope open blind eyes this morning convict hardened hearts this morning amongst us all to to see the savior To not turn away like the Pharisees, to not go back to our ways like the disciples of John, but to forsake all, to follow him and his way. We thank you for your grace gift in the Savior. for The grace gift of faith may be magnified this morning as we approach this Passion Week in our calendar, commemorating the time when this Savior was taken away from his disciples. It causes us to be somber in reflection. There is a sullenness, as we think of our sins, which nailed him there, but that is quickly replaced by joy and rejoicing, feasting and celebration. For he died, he paid it all in our place, rose from the dead. In him now there is fullness of joy. So may we rejoice, may we be a joy-filled people, so thrilled we now tell others that the way is found, the way is open in Christ alone. In his name we pray, amen.